Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of the Van Y AP World Podcast. In this episode, I'll be covering Chapter 29, The Making of Industrial Society. Some of these subtopics in this chapter include the causes of industrialization, the innovations and technology of the Industrial Revolution that are early on created, invented, and expanded upon, And probably the largest part of this episode will focus on the major changes, trends, and effects of industrialization on things like labor, gender roles, uh, child labor, urbanization, population, economic transformations, the environment, um, transportation, and communication. Uh, Then I'll be focusing on some of the reactions to industrialization, uh, as well as the spread of industrialization throughout the world. Uh, So if you would like to move to a specific point in this podcast uh, episode, please do so. Look in the uh, description for some of those times that you can move to if you are looking for a specific area uh, that you need help with. For this first topic, we're going to discuss the causes of industrialization. So the Industrial Revolution uh, begins in Britain. Uh, it pretty much gets a head start before all the other uh, areas of Europe and in the Americas. Uh, so Britain really becomes the foundation and basis for the Industrial Revolution. Now, before we look at the Industrial Revolution, it's important to look at some of the causes and um, conditions that allowed for such a uh, revolution to happen. And really where we should start is with the agricultural revolution. So without this revolution, the Industrial Revolution might not have been possible. The idea that there was a consistent trend in attempting to improve society can definitely be considered a bridge uh, between this revolution, the agricultural revolution, and then the next, the industrial revolution. The agricultural revolution uh, focused a lot of its attention on trying to increase the efficiency of farming methods. Uh, farming methods. So therefore, um, if you could find a better way to farm, um, improve it with better tools that were more efficient, that can improve farming and your production, your harvest. Uh, this will transfer directly then to the idea of improving society and improving the efficiency of manufacturing methods. Okay, And this will also go hand in hand as the industrialization uh, will also then improve actual farming, um, uh, farming tools as well and more machines that will help farmers. So both will kind of go hand in hand, and essentially there'll be a bridge between the two. Another thing that also aided the uh, onset of the industrialization uh, was the enclosure movement. The enclosure movement was where we had small farms purchased by larger, wealthier estates, and these landowners then had those fenced off. Now, with this enclosure movement and the invention of the seed drill, there was a beginning of large-scale farming. Machines that replaced manual labor, okay, were now able to harvest and produce more. Along with the idea of crop rotation, there were higher surpluses of food. And this is a very important concept, the idea of higher surpluses of food. Because you won't need all of the manual labor necessary for, like, subsistence farming. Meaning that you will have the ability to create so much of a harvest and product not everyone needs to farm. And this is important because that unskilled labor that was once in the farms will now eventually be able to move to the factory work later on. So therefore, if any populations from rural areas are migrating into cities, it's sustainable because there's still a uh, production of food that has replaced the skill of uh, the unskilled labor on the farms. The other thing of uh, of uh, importance for Britain as being uh, the foundation or basis for the Industrial Revolution is the geography and the raw materials that were available, right? A lot of these preconditions for the Industrial Revolution made Britain the best place for it. Uh, this concluded the abundance of coal and iron. Uh, these deposits essentially will be the fuel for what will be um, the industrial um, Industrial Revolution. Uh, also, in South and Southeast um, England, it's relatively flat, and this will also help with the extension and completion of railways and communication between um, uh, uh, between the region. Also, 
England is a coastal, or, you know, is essentially coastal, along with its uh, river systems. So this means there will be movement that will be uh, both open within the country and outside the country, right? So imports and exports will be uh, consistently available um, as, as England is not only coastal, but also has a river system. And then if you add a railway along with that and improve the tr- transportation, uh, this will definitely increase uh, a lot of the uh, formation of industrial uh, industrialization. Okay, so in the next section, this is just some basis for some background on uh, how the Industrial Revolution really gets started. And uh, now I'm going to focus on a little bit of the different innovations and changes in technology uh, that the uh, that uh, specifically England experienced, as well as uh, outlets other in other areas, such as the United States or other areas of Europe, uh, where uh, specific pieces of technology were expanded upon. Okay, in this section, I'll be focusing on innovations and technology of the Industrial Revolution. And specifically in Britain, one of the largest industries was the cotton industry. This accounted for about 40% of exports. And essentially, you'd have raw materials such as cotton brought into uh, Britain, which would be then produced, manufactured into um, into textiles and clothing. And that clothing would then be exported and sold. So um, that's why a lot of these new innovations in technology specifically are geared towards the production of textiles. So, for example, the Flying Shuttle by John Kay. Uh, this uh, basically sped up the, um, the thread-making process. And the, the idea is that, look, you have raw cotton, and that material has to be then transferred not only into, um, you know, at the end product textiles, but there's a process along the way. And that process includes getting, um, you know, the cotton itself, getting a lot of uh, the seeds out, and then making sure that cotton turns into a thread, and then using that thread to get weaved into, um, you know, into clothing or for whatever, um, whatever the product is that they might be using that for. Uh, so, for example, the flying shuttle helped to speed up the thread making process. Okay, this was then also expanded upon uh, by Samuel Crompton, who then made this um, process powered by steam. Okay, um, then another. Okay, uh, another part of this process was the weaving and the water powered and later steam powered um, way of weaving was uh, helped with uh, the uh, with Edmund Cartwright and the power loom. So a lot of a lot of these parts of the process were now all sped up. And the idea that they were sped up means they were essentially um, they were not done by hand anymore. They were done by a person observing and making sure that the machine was working properly. So that mean that that meant that this was essentially unskilled labor uh, that was being used to just essentially oversee or play a very small role in the production, uh, which took away a lot of the uh, hand weaving, hand threading, um, which was also a lot slower and usually done by individuals or handcrafted. Um, this this period of time and the and the industrial revolution. Uh, as I said before, Britain was very rich in coal, and essentially coal is what drove the steam power. Uh, so James Watt was the uh, inventor of the steam engine, and later it was expanded upon for transportation purposes by George Stevenson, who created the steam-powered locomotive. And the importance of this is that uh, steam power is now uh, replacing uh, like water power as the energy source. And since this is an energy source, I'll talk later about this, about the impact on the pollution and impact on the environment. Uh, but steam power then will replace it. And this will be used for all different purposes. It'll be used for uh, machines. It will be used for transportation, like the trains and um, steamships. And will really then uh, set the tone for uh, what will be um, how things operate and how things work. Uh, so essentially, along with that, another not necessarily inventor, right, but more innovator would be um, in the United States, Henry Ford. And this is really not until after the 1900s, but I think it's very important to note here because this helps to uh, establish the idea of innovation of the period and uh, a direct result of it. And Henry Ford uh, helped to um, produce... The, the idea of the assembly line and mass production. 
trying to create as much as possible. And by giving everyone in the assembly line one task to complete, uh, which eventually results in the end product. Uh, and by doing so, it would allow for um, more quantity uh, at eventually a cheaper price and producing, um, you know, of course, more of it at a quicker rate. Overall, the development of new technology and innovation led to the um, establishment of manufacturing and factories as the main source of production. Uh, so this begins to replace um, anything done in the home, anything done by specialized labor, which I will also talk about uh, in, in more detail in the next section. Okay, in this section, I'm going to be covering a lot of the major changes, trends, and effects of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, so for the first one, I'm going to start with uh, labor. So as far as labor goes, uh, there are definitely some causes and effects we see here, um, some changes that happen, uh, especially along with how work is done. So in the pre-industrial era, you had the use of the putting out system or proto-industrialization. Uh, this was really early on. Uh, between 1450 and 1750, when trading post empires essentially uh, had access to raw materials, and they brought those raw materials back with them to England. Uh, when they brought them back to England and Europe, for that matter, uh, a lot of those raw materials were given to people, and those were able to make them inside their household. And this was essentially an interesting form of entrepreneurship and um, very, very, very small business, uh, a way to make some profit, uh, very small scale, um, but it was technically considered a early form of manufacturing and industrialization. But at this point, by industrial period, you now have the use of the factory system. And the factory system, um, the idea that um, a factory uh, uses machinery that is um, uh, that is complete. The work is completed by uh, workers, and a the owner uh, would reap a lot of the benefits of that and profit um, through um, a business uh, model. So uh, the people who would be doing the work would no longer be in charge of doing the work themselves. They would be um, doing the work for someone else. Um, so when a factory worker went to work, nothing was theirs. They were essentially renting, right, um, the space for their time. So their labor was being paid, um, but none of the work that they made was a profit of their own. The only money they made was their wage. So essentially what that means is through the factory system, the factory owner supplies the place to work. He supplies the materials for work. He supplies the machinery. Um, the only thing that they worker is providing is the actual labor itself. Okay. And that we really see that uh, not only in proto-industrialization and putting out system of when people were doing the work themselves and they kind of owned all the materials essentially. Um, we saw that in agricultural labor too. Uh, so if you had, let's say a farm and you had all the things of your own, um, and you decided to leave that farm, uh, you're now leaving behind all the things that were yours. Or let's say if you were an agri uh, working on a farm and you were in agriculture, you might have worked on someone else's farm. It was similar to maybe the factory system. But essentially, you have this movement from f agricultural labor and labor in the household to labor in factories. And the issue with this is that it replaced skilled labor. So generally when something was made, a product, that product was handcrafted, right? It was completed by a person right, uh, with their own hands. Now, the issue with that specialized labor is that it did cost more. And uh, it was custom, generally, and it took some time to make it as well. Now, with the factory system, there was an unskilled labor that filled the void of the specialized labor. For example, handcrafts um, could now be massed, you know, things that were originally done handcrafted could be mass produced and manufactured, costing less and requiring less time, work, or specialized labor. Essentially, one, all they had to do was oversee the machines, right, which produce something, then actually producing it themselves. And um, since you took out the specialized labor, uh, you didn't have to charge as much for that person to work for you. If you're a factory owner, you could, you know, you could basically argue with them and tell them, look, you're really not producing much of a, um, 
you know, uh, a work for me. You're essentially just producing very unskilled work and I don't have to then maybe pay you as much. And essentially that was all for profit, uh, as, as they would. So then another thing about uh, labor at this time is that there isn't slave labor. Um, any type of slave labor was essentially eliminated mainly because it didn't benefit a growing economy, right? Slaves could not purchase then anything, the whole thing about driving an economy is that people put keep putting money back into the economy. Um, so in some ways, the end of slave labor at this time was more of a natural transformation than really a moral issue, uh, if anything. It was real more based on the idea that it was not utilitarian. It didn't help at all. Um, so um, now I'm going to just discuss some things about gender roles as far as um, the changing continuities of the woman's role in society. Um, in during the industrial period. So the woman's role uh, sometimes maybe changed, maybe stayed the same. It really depended on which class of society you were in. So for example, if you were an upper class, um, then more or less things stayed the same. Um, if you were wealthy, you just continued to be wealthy. It really didn't hurt you that much. Right? And even some instances, women actually reinforced the patriarchal patriarchal structure, saying that this is what they should be doing. They should be, um, you know, uh, living a domestic life. They should be in the home. As uh, most of the women in the upper class didn't work anyway. uh, So that really um, didn't change their conditions, though it really did change the working class women's lives. Because now that women left the home, okay, to work, now that women were not making right? Um, any materials or products in the domestic system of the putting out system or the um, proto-industrialization, now women were actually part of that factory work. And a lot of them would work, uh, especially if you're a working class, uh, up until you're married. Um, and then you would even maybe still work after that um, if you had someone to help take care of the kids at home. So, um, Women who may have taken part, uh, you know, part in work inside the home or helped on farm work now had a different, very different experience in urban and industrial societies. So the reason women also had to work is that, especially in a working class, um, they had to supplement the income. So husbands, right, really did need a supplement in their income in working class. Um, You know, albeit though, they would be earning a lower wage to supplement that income. So women, and later we'll talk, I'll talk in a moment about children, didn't earn as much as men. And for that reason, women actually took up a larger portion of some of the factory uh, workforce than men did. And a lot of those work, um, a lot of the work or the factories women would be in would be actually textile factories, which I said earlier was about, you know, let's say 40% of the industry. Um, and this effect on generals also affected family life and the family unit of the working class because basically family ties and, um, you know, dynamics will be strained and the long hours of both men, women, and then eventually even children here will affect the basic family unit and, uh, family structure. Um, and a lot of this was due to based on which social class you were in. And, um, because of this, you then did have a changing social structure, uh, between upper middle and lower class, uh, specifically working class. If you were a woman, most of them were all working. Okay. Um, so then I'm going to discuss a little bit about child labor here. Since uh, working class families needed, again, as much income as possible, uh, not only the men and women, right, the husband or the wife or the mother and the father will be working, but also the children, too. Um, So a lot of these then children forfeited schooling for working in factories. And there will be, and I'll discuss that in a little bit later, the idea of uh, some act that said, well, if they're working, you have to be provided, you know, reading, writing, and um, you need to provide them some type of schooling. But... That would not always be the case, all right? And children were very helpful in a factory for the reasons that they were useful um, as far as their height, um, their maneuverability, um, because they were smaller, and they could operate some machines, which adults were not cut out for. Children could also be exploited, though, and that's why factory owners also wanted to hire children, because essentially um, they could exploit their conditions, the hours they worked, the wages they gave them, And they were also at the mercy not only of being um, 
or providing an income and having parental pressures, but also factory manager pressures um, that, you know, in some ways might they might be whipped or they might be scolded and they wouldn't they would have to listen to their superiors. And essentially, uh, many children then over time uh, developed conditions. Now, these conditions could be of wide variety. They could be necessarily, um, not necessarily just uh, the coal uh, inhalation uh, from the deposits or, you know, from being in the mines or in the chimneys, um, but it could also be losing a finger. It could be losing um, or getting injured on, on the job because since they were so maneuverable, they were getting in between machines. And you have to realize when you're putting a child in to uh, uh, work in a factory that, you know, children make mistakes and they are not perfect. Um, and I'm not saying they wouldn't be necessarily good at their job over time, um, but but children make mistakes. And, you know, especially putting someone in a position like that, uh, there's definitely, it's just opening the door for any, uh, you know, slew of issues. So child labor will be exploited and eventually uh, over time it will be fixed. Now when I say fixed, that's not an uh you know a definite as in that everything is all of a sudden great, no children work anymore. That's not going to change right away, but the point is that it will bring light to it. So the Sadler committee um in in parliament was to bring light to the issue uh where witnesses reports were brought up over some issues over child labor, um, interviews were included, and it did lead to the Factory Act of 1833. But realize that this only applied to textiles, so therefore these factories um, uh, had to fix the conditions that existed in textiles. So this doesn't totally eliminate it, but it does make it um, a step forward, let's say, in a reaction to the industrial period and the conditions on child labor. So just some conclusions here on labor as um, as we move on. It will eventually lead to the formation of also, uh, as far as men go, um, trade unions. So these were specialized workers as well as factory workers who wanted to protect their work. Let's say it was for a specific type of work um, or specific type of uh, factory work or specialized labor. People would get together based on their trade and they would um, want to form some type of organization where they can all unite and try to follow up with some negotiation between the factory owner and themselves, the workers. And essentially, as a factory worker, as I mentioned before, because not, none of the um, production was actually their own, it was just the labor that they included, they felt a little bit powerless. They felt replaceable. They worked long days for little wages, and if anyone got hurt or injured on the job, it essentially then uh, meant they were out of work, no compensation. Uh, let's say you lost some fingers and you need those for that job, and you won't be able to complete your job without it. Uh, it's tough luck, and uh, no help was given to them, no compensation. And again, as I said, you're easily replaceable. So therefore, you were you were pretty much um, you know at the mercy of your health and your condition to keep working. So I do want you to know, though, that trade unions did not try to eliminate capitalism. So the established economy here of capitalism was not, uh, the trade unions attempted not to eliminate it, but they just to work with it. They just wanted fair wages and conditions. And trade unions, the goal was not to be violent. The goal was to be more negotiable um, and try to form some type of bridge between the factory owner and the factory worker, right? The employer and the employee. Let's try to make it work. Um, let's try to make it fair. And that was the goal. But not all will be as peaceful as that. Some will actually be negatively um, uh, reacting to this with the onset of industrial labor. Uh, because essentially, as I said before, the skilled labor, they will be really angry. They'll be angry that their work is being replaced and that all the work that they've uh, done in their trade or they've been, um, you know, uh, they've been doing their whole lives. They might have been apprentices. They might have really spent a lot of time perfecting their craft. And now factories are replacing that. Some include the Luddites. Uh, they will go on a rampage. They'll damage machines and factories. And these will be a lot more of a violent protest compared to others. But the goal of them was not to injure 
or hurt any factory workers uh, that were taking their you know job for for uh, for lack of a better word here. But the the machines themselves they wanted to uh, destroy, and they often did this um, with uh, tools. Try to you know try to. Uh, try to stop the work of the factory and cause, uh, you know, cause any issues they could uh, in halting it. Uh, some of these were actually gaining some popular support and, you know, some were found, tried, and essentially they were hanged. And uh, this brought an end to it. But it, the importance is that there were both positive, um, peaceful reactions, but also some negative, violent ones. Um, there were also some basic regulations on labor. Uh, I do want to note that even earlier than the Factory Act, um, there were some calls for health and morals. Um, these provided strict regulations. The only issue is that there were no inspectors. And as I said, the reason nothing is definite here, that labor continues on as it does, is that there's no one inspecting to enforce these laws. And a lot of them went unchecked. Likely all of those who were unhappy could find themselves without a job. If you were someone who, uh, you know, were claiming, well, I, under this act, I have these, this power and, you know, you're supposed to provide this, this, this and that for me. And unless, unless it wasn't really written in a contract anywhere, they would say, if you're not happy with this, like you can leave, right? So with the formation of factories and uh, a lot of people moving um, from the agricultural labor and from the domestic labor to uh, the factory work, this type of labor caused um, a migration, essentially an interregional migration of uh, urbanization, the rise of cities. So during the 19th century, England will experience a dramatic rise in urban centers and um, the populations in cities. Right. Many of these cities will increase, um, you know, by five times, uh, by seven times. And uh, they will uh, create this new, densely populated uh, urban um, urban area in England. So the only problem, though, is that when you put this many people in a densely packed area, um, there's definitely the um, the probability of issues. So. Some problems with urban centers included the idea of overcrowding and all these the awful conditions that come along with city life. There will even be a report on the sanitary conditions of the laboring population of Great Britain in 1842. Um, so this led to some improvement in health and living conditions in urban areas. For example, one issue was sewage. People were throwing things out of the buildings. They were not properly getting rid of their garbage and uh, especially all types of waste. So therefore, sewers were built. Streets were then cleaned by street sweepers. Okay, And the reason this is also helpful is that you're creating other jobs. right? You're, you're not just creating factory work, but other jobs as well. They also needed to purify the water. Water, um, a contaminant, could be very dirty. Disease generally could also spread through water or contaminated water. So it was very important if you're drink for drinking water, a basic survival need uh, to have filtered, purified water. Another was government setting up public baths and wash houses. Um, you know, it's a shame to say it, but cleanliness and keeping people clean is uh, some of the basis of a civilized society. Uh, especially think about the types of work people were doing. Uh, keeping a very uh, clean and... Um, you know, uh, hygienic people was important, right, in a city life. Another were the idea of soup kitchens set up, because not everyone, especially in the working class, it's not, not everyone's going to be fed, or not everyone is going to be nourished the way that they should be. You're also going to have the necessity for a police force, uh, because the onset of urbanization brings with it crime, when you overcrowd and put people together, and you also put people together of some who have something and some who do not have any, you know, have anything, right? The haves and the haves nots, uh, that really provides uh, the basis for crime. Uh, so the onset of crime will also be important for to uh, make it safer and have a police force. You also have the Public Health Act of 1875 where officials were forced to pave uh, light and clean town streets and appoint medical officers of health and appoint a sanitary inspector. This is generally the the, the idea of you know, health inspections and uh, making sure that there are sanitary conditions throughout the city. So 
The other problem about urbanization is, okay, people move to cities. Now, where do they live? How do they filter or naturally um, figure out where one lives? And people will be separated by class. So you'll have class, uh, you know, class segregation here as uh, it'll impact where you live. People flock, uh, but they're not going to live all in the same area. So social classes will divide people based on if you were living in the upper class, middle, even higher, you know, upper middle or, you know, lower middle class or the working class. So with this urbanization and overcrowded uh, cities, um, that uh, parallels the idea of population growth. So due to this change in agriculture, there's a steady rise in population in Britain over the course of 19th century. It's not just that people are migrating, right? They're also increasing, right, the population. So uh, the basic reasons for this, as I said before, are the ideas of the uh, surplus of food. And also, you have a demographic transition. So this demographic transition is uh, due to fertility and mortality. One reason is people are living longer, okay? Um, and also, uh, the idea of people living longer, you also have um, the um, changes in fertility. So people are also able to control it. Um, but essentially, you have a, uh, even if you have a decrease in fertility, um, and, uh, incre- and a decrease in mortality, uh, they essentially rise and create a steady um, increase in population despite any type of, you know, it's not dramatic uh, or explosive for any reason. Um, it's for the most part steady. So you'll have the population in 19th century, uh, 19th, 19th century uh, generally move up around three times, so about, about 10 million to about, you know, uh, 35 million or so. So with this population growth, with uh, urbanization and the change in labor, um, we see the major changes in the economy and economic transformations. Um, So in this, I'll just generally discuss how you move on from capitalism and the ownership of businesses and corporations. So capitalism in this time, this period is not created. It's just naturally developed right over time. Um, but I will say during this period from 1700, uh, 1750 to 1900, it is definitely strengthened uh, during this period. And essentially, that's re- for the reason of laws of supply and demand and the expansion of business ventures. Uh, one of the most notable uh, philosophers on this is Adam Smith. In his, in his work, The Wealth of Nations, he really focuses on the um, idea that people should seek self-interest and they should compete for consumers' money in a free market. Right, this forces businesses to create the best quality product for the lowest price. This is to him uh, a fair form of um, an economy. This economy should be fair because the government should take a step back and allow business to practice its its own ways and allow businesses to compete. Because with competition, if you have a lot of people vying for your dollar. Uh, They're going to do whatever they can, and this usually drives down the price, and it also increases the quality. Because if someone says, I don't need to buy your product because this other business has a better product than you, all right, and therefore the business that's failing and not creating a good product is going to do something to try and make a better product because if they don't, no one's going to buy their, 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 um, their things. It also reduces the price because everyone wants your money. And if everyone wants your money, they're going to say, well, if I drive my price down a little bit, maybe they'll buy mine before the others. And then everyone will try to do the same until it reaches a point where they'll pretty much stay at the same level. And that's referred to as like a market price. So before this, during the period 1450 to 1750, um, before um, this industrial period, the British East India Company dominated trade and allowed for joint stock companies. So there was this investment in business that was an operation mostly overseas. But the Industrial Revolution will transform this. One can invest now both inside of England for business and overseas. Right? The continuity here is that raw materials were consistently being um, funneled into England. But now you could not only invest in getting those raw materials, but you can invest in manufacturing those goods. And when you own all aspects or you have investment in all aspects of that product from start to finish, 
That's the formation of a corporation. So corporations um, were businesses that could own or control all aspects of the production, right? You'd be the one to get the materials. You would be the one that would um, build and provide the factories, uh, the machines. You would be the one that would be in charge of the labor for it. You would be the one that's in charge of creating and manufacturing that product to its end. And you would also be in charge of selling that product. So these formation of corporations or business organizations, um, you know, will develop at this time. And a lot of the wealthy will get rich off of this, um, especially if they had enough money to invest in it or if they had enough money to start it. Um, So the one thing about this is that when you are a business and there's no one else in town and and you are the one that is able to control it, uh, there is the formation of monopolies and trusts. So a monopoly is one single business essentially that is able to control um, the mark that and control the prices and is the really the only the only one that is selling a certain product versus a trust where there's a few. But what they do is they create an unfair business practice in which there was very little competition and one business or a few business businesses here they get to set the prices. So usually they, it makes sense for them, well, look, if we can set the prices, we're going to set them higher than the market value, right? And this would then help to drive up profit. And if this is the only product, right, um, that, and you need to buy it, and there's no other business that's competing with that other one for it, then it might be, you know, it might be something you have to buy and you have to pay that price. And that's why we consider it unfair because it's not a competitive price, um, so, um, one other issue with, uh, and moving into the environment is, uh, one issue is, and it's not, not a, a long one here is, is pollution. So with the use of coal, once it coal is burned, it will, uh, create a pollution and this will not only affect the idea of smog or it might affect, um, uh, soot and it will affect people's, um, uh, not only the environment, but people's conditions and their uh, their livelihood. So, one impact, one uh, huge impact of this is on the environment, and this will be something consistent that uh, even today is still an issue: the, the burning of coal and uh, fossil fuels. So, this really is where we see that you know, in, in today's uh, understanding of it, uh, we're trying to eliminate that today in some ways with the uh, the use of you know some type of renewable source of energy. And, uh, get, you know, eliminate it. Uh, so this is actually the root of it and where we see how that impact on the environment starts in the industrial period. And just generally, uh, another impact of or effect of the industrial period is in transportation and communication. As a result of the industrial revolution, we see the beginning of the railroads and railways. And the reason this is important because this is now it, it connects parts of uh, the area that are man-made. Not a river system. It's a man-made network that helps to tie businesses, people um, in a certain region. You also have now the telegraph. The telegraph, uh, a communication tool that one can uh, communicate with another over long distances. uh, And that will be helpful not only for businesses, um, but for military and um, society in general. And then lastly, the steamships. So those who are not traveling on land, those who are traveling on, uh, you know, over maritime routes or by water will be using steamships. The reason steamships are so helpful here is that they help to transport goods over a longer, um, could be of a longer stretch at a quicker rate and will be able to even carry in some ways more depending upon the ship. Uh, so these were a lot of the important effects of the Industrial Revolution and in the Next section, I'm going to discuss uh, not just the uh, the effects of it, but now some reactions to it as far as uh, people in England themselves or people um, from the working class or people from, um, you know, their own works developing philosophies in response to it. Okay. 
In this section, I'm going to discuss some of the reactions to the industrialization. And uh, essentially, there will be uh, twofold. There will be one group that believes it is the best thing ever, and they are celebrating it, while the other is thinking it is the downfall of society. And a lot of them um, come to not only want to reject it, um, but overthrow um, you know, current government social and political structures because of it. So let's first start out with those who celebrate it. In England, um, some revered it and wanted to just openly show the world um, not only what has happened in England, but what has happened around the world as far as industrialization goes. And this was represented at Crystal Palace in 1851 uh, for an exhibition that housed an, a, a large glass and cast iron um, structure within it. Um, an exhibition of all different materials, inventions, innovations um, from around the world and in Britain, from the United States, that just really showcased um, how far the world had come at that point in the industrial period. Um, but not everyone celebrated it like that. Some felt that it was, um, you know, uh, the downfall of, you know, society and that the working class has been now taken advantage of. And we saw these transformations in social structures, right? The rising of this, um, you know, middle class and essentially creating a bigger divide um, with the working class and the upper class uh, as a whole. So um, for the working class, right, wealth was just even more so out of their reach and wealthy business owners increased their profits. And with the uh, growing capitalism, this meant that divisions just created discontent among the working class. And this resonates even um, you know, even more so with the German philosophers, uh, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. And in their meeting with the Communist League, they wrote the Communist Manifesto, which observed these exact faults within society that they felt were, um, were a problem, this growing divide and rise of capitalism. So while this was written in, in 1848, um, just three years before the Crystal Palace um, exhibition, uh, they they decided on um, you know letting not only the world know but the the working class throughout Europe about um, the class struggle and that the history is the record of a class struggle and. Um, where did this come from? Why did he come up with this? Well, he actually had spent some time in England and observed some of these experiences in discussion with not only the working class, but middle class. And he called for the working class or the proletarians to overthrow the government and establish an equal distribution of wealth. Right? This is essentially the foundation of Marxist ideology and socialism. He believed that the wealthy upper class, the bourgeoisie, could not exist without the working class because they provided the labor. The upper class believed the working class would not have work without the opportunity for labor and work. So he said that, you know, these are working class people um, are enslaved. And they needed to lose the chains. And a lot of his uh, the words that he used are specifically geared towards trying to incite and trying to, um, you know, rile up uh, the working class as a whole. And he believes that it can't just be one uh, country or nation that does this. So that's why this is actually translated into multiple languages. And we're going to see that, you know, industrialization spread throughout Europe. So it's important that not just one country listens to this or hears this, but multiple, right? Because it needs to be a class struggle together, all right? That is throughout social hierarchies in Europe, not just one. So a lot of his work resonated with working class people, right? He really wanted to grow the Communist Party and use the government as an avenue for change. Um, the Marxist ideology compared to Adam Smith, those are in complete opposite. Adam Smith believed that the government should have more of a laissez-faire, right, or hands-off, um, you know, government that would just essentially step back. And let allow business to kind of compete and work as it does. While Marxist ideology here in socialism calls for a hands-on government, which the government controls the means of production under a communist government. 
The only problem is that that does offer some issues to personal freedoms with communist governments. When that government has its hands on the economy and the means of production, it also has its hands on everything else then. So when you when you have that, you you do lose those personal liberties. And it's a slippery slope because essentially now the government has its hands on all types of power, not just the economic power. And really then this is, you know, this is opposite of the allowance of business to explore their own profits and people to freely do as they please, right? With minimal government interaction. But don't forget, capitalism here is a risk. So while communism, you know, does offer that idea of a hands-on government, equal distribution, capitalism, you have to realize, is a risk here. So it can be seen as fair because even though a factory owner may be wealthy and they may put a lot of their money in, it's a risk. They don't know that their product is going to be good. They don't know that their product is going to sell as really well as the others. They don't know that their factory is going to work out the way they hope. Right? A factory owner could invest all of his life savings, all of his money into a business, and it could fail. Right? Profit and success is never a guarantee. You know, in today's in today's society, if you want to come up with a product, you put as much money as you can into it, right? Uh, you get investors to put money into your product. Uh, there's no guarantee that it pans out and it works, okay? So you have to realize that it is a risk. But if you provide the risk, you also get the reward from that. So if you do make a lot of money from it, right, you're, allow- you, you're allowed to, right? Because you provided all of the means of production, you provided the materials, and um, you would therefore get the profit. Okay, so it does go both ways. Um, but overall, unlike trade unions, Marx uh, essentially wanted to completely eliminate capitalism um, and get rid of it as the standard of the economic system, um, while the trade unions wanted to really hold on to it still. Another area which is more cultural is that some believed industrialization really gone too far. So along with the scientific revolution, um, some felt that new technology, the discovery of new ideas, um, was threatening not only to the established work and labor, but just to society as a whole. This is essentially uh, called, um, you know, romanticism, where we had romantics that they believe that the downfall of society was because of the industrial revolution and new technology. It was also a literary and artistic movement, uh, right? It was a reaction to the new societal changes, right? It elicited both a deep nostalgia and reaction to it. This is similar to in every aspect of culture or society where there's an older generation or there's a group that um, is not happy with uh, adjusting to new technology. Um, They're not with the times. They um, may have essentially seen the time that they're living in just kind of go right past them. And a lot of the romantics are, again, as I said, nostalgic and um, more of a have conservative or conservative values or feelings. Uh, so in the next section, I'm just briefly going to discuss how uh, the Industrial Revolution begins to spread around the world and uh, develop after uh, it begins in Britain. Okay, so in this last section, we're going to discuss the spread of industrialization. As I'd mentioned earlier in this episode, uh, it begins in Britain for all of the reasons of the conditions um, that were just 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 perfect for the industrial period to start there. Uh, will eventually will spread throughout Europe. Uh, some places that it spreads to are France, Belgium, Germany, and even into the Americas, right? Uh, as seen in the United States, which has some fair success with it. Germany of these was the latest due to the problems of unification in the early 1800s, but it eventually caught up in the um, the mid 1800s. Uh, a lot of Europe, uh, especially um, you know mainland Europe, had been affected by the Napoleonic era, and after the Congress of Vienna, uh, once a lot of the land has all already been established and a lot of the borders are drawn up. Um, that's when it's able to take off. And later with German unification, that's when it's able to take off um, 
that's why that had some delay there. England really wasn't affected by that too much. Um, so then the Industrial Revolution will expand, and it expands as a part of the global economy. So raw materials, which were consistently still something that were um, were traded, were now shipped faster. Okay, And not only were they shipped faster, but the products, the manufactured goods from the factories were shipped faster. So there's more importing and exporting. Okay, the, the development of the global economy expands this time as well. So there will also be a high demand, though, for products. Because if products can be made quicker, right, people will want more of them. Okay, if they can be made quicker, um, you know, it'll be uh, advantageous for factory workers to, to try and, you know, churn out as many as, of, of that product as they can so they can sell it. But since there is such a high demand for this product, the demand for the raw material goes up as well. Um, so one interesting development which we can discuss here is the idea of cotton. Now, cotton for the British, one main place where they usually, you know, where they usually got it was the United was the United States or the the colonies before that. So um, some mercantilist relationships will change or transform here. So this will lead to imperialism. So imperialism will definitely be a product of this time. There'll be some political revolutions in the Americas, which will end some of those imperialist ventures, but that will not stop the British and other countries. So some of them will actually just change where they imperialize or establish colonies. So Britain will move their cotton exploitation of the Americas, and they'll move it to India. And other undeveloped nations uh, as well will be colonized. And they're going to be mainly used for their raw materials. So industrialization will will be then also be brought to them because it will be worth it to industrialize those areas um, as it will help in colonization too. This is where we see the rise of like the British Empire. So in history, when we think about, you know, um, the the largest empire in world history, uh, some say it's, oh, well, it must be the Mongols. Well, the Mongols were the largest contiguous, but in actuality, putting in the colonies and, you know, everything together, it actually is the British Empire, uh, but it's not connected. And it's it's interesting that one of the smaller, if you'd refer to it as smaller empires um, or countries at the time, really grew the biggest territory. And a lot of this was due to those colonization and mercantilist policies that uh, transform. And it's all derived from raw goods, raw materials, that can be manufactured later on. And this is the driving force of the industrial period. Okay, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Van Wy AP World Podcast on the industrial period for chapter 29. Um, I do think that this will be helpful for any evidence beyond the documents, uh, context, or even, for that matter, analysis uh, in preparation for the DBQ. A special, again, shout out to uh, Period 6, uh, Hewlett High School, AP World.